everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm furious. Lisa's been out of town on business, so I've been reading old comic books and yelling at them, which should frankly come as a surprise to no one. I stumbled across a comic book that I believe may be at least in part responsible for a great deal of the ills that are facing society today. You see, like a lot of people, I've been increasingly concerned by the fact that a certain segment of the population seems to really hate science in a way that is really to the detriment of the planet. Now, like a lot of people initially, I blamed this on their greed or short-sightedness or a kind of generalized lack of empathy towards future generations. But I now believe that the reason that those people hate science is because they read Bomba the Jungle Boy number four. Bomba the Jungle Boy is kind of a young Tarzan-type story. Takes place in South America instead of Africa, but most of the story beats are the same. Now, the issue itself is fine. I mean, yes, the premise is pretty inherently racist, but other than that, the artwork is very good, and the storytelling is relatively inoffensive. No, my issue with this is a insert about animal fun facts. Animal fun facts are, of course, a child's gateway into science and, in my opinion, the best branch of science. It goes animal fun facts, then robotics, then those glowing orbs that when you touch them, they make your hair stand up. So I see that there are going to be some animal fun facts. I'm like, this is perfect. Oh, how wrong I was. This little, quote, educational, unquote, insert is dedicated to telling you the names of baby animals. Oh, that's fun. It focuses on four animals. A elephant, a chimpanzee, a jackrabbit, and a turtle. There are illustrations of the adult forms of each of these. That's the first mistake. You have an opportunity to draw a baby animal? Draw a baby animal. It's cuter. Then... When you hold the page upside down, the comic book informs you that a baby elephant is called a calf, a baby jackrabbit is called a kitten, a baby turtle is called a chicken, and a baby chimpanzee is called an infant. The first two of these, I have no qualms with. They're not particularly fun, but they're a little fun, and I'll grant you that they are facts. I am almost certain that a baby turtle is not called a chicken. But I'm willing to even let that one slide, because it may not be a fact, but calling a baby turtle a chicken is fun and could lead to some confusing antics. And I am all in favor of antics. But trying to pawn off the information that an infant chimpanzee is called an infant chimpanzee as some kind of a fun fact? That is inexcusable. It's barely a fact, and it certainly isn't fun. Infant just means baby. They're telling you that a baby chimpanzee is called a baby chimpanzee. That's not a fucking fun fact. No wonder these people hate science. They were informed at an early age that science is boring and redundant and dumb. 
And what makes it worse is that the writer already proved with the turtle chicken thing that they're willing to just make stuff up. So if you're going to make stuff up, why not make something fun up? So my proposal to save the world is that we work really hard on time travel, we go back in time, and we replace the panel in Bomba the Jungle Boy number four that informs children that infant chimpanzees are called infant chimpanzees with a panel informing readers that if a pistol shrimp were the size of a chipmunk, then its sonic boom could vaporize a cow that was standing a meter away from it. Now, is that true? Nobody knows for sure. That's not the point. But I'll tell you what it is. It is fun. And it'll get kids interested in science. And then we won't have global warming. You're welcome, the future. And now that I've saved the planet, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Thomas Furchalk. Mutton Chop Joe knows ASL. Cyborg his Pascals and Blisses. Does Donna Troy speak Mycenaean Greek? Maybe it's in the synopsis. Thanks, Thomas. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 3, November 1984. Souls as white as heaven, as black as hell. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by George Perez. Inked by Romeo Tangal lettered by Bob LaPan, and colored by Adrienne Roy. Teen Titan Roll Call Raven Lilith Cyborg Jericho Wonder Girl Beast Boy Cyborg Starfire Kid Flash And kinda Jason Todd a little bit, but not really. Previously in the New Teen Titans... For the past several years, Raven has struggled to suppress her emotions for fear that if she were unable to do so, her demonic bad dad Trigon might crawl out of her bird-shaped soul tummy and conquer the universe. As this inner conflict intensified, the Azerathian empath withdrew from her teammates in an attempt to insulate herself from absorbing their ambient adolescent angst, but to little avail. Sensing that her efforts to keep her infernal paternal issues internal were failing, Raven turned to her titanic teammates for assistance. Unfortunately, Jericho chose that moment of vulnerability to use his objectively creepy powers to take over Raven's body as a prank. Damn it, Jericho! Raven was understandably aghast at this intrusion, which brought Trigon's influence closer to the surface. The avian-themed empath expelled her astral interloper and locked herself in her room, announcing as she did so her intention to quit the Titans. Feeling contrite, Jericho attempted to make amends for his violation of Raven's boundaries by once again violating her boundaries, this time by invading her dreams. Bad move, Jericho! As a stowaway in the slumbering sorceress's subconscious, Jericho encountered Trigon himself, who proceeded to psychically torture the mutton-chopped mental malefactor. Using the last of her remaining willpower, Raven managed to rescue Jericho from her father's clutches by ejecting the consent-agnostic crime fighter from her mind. Jericho found himself back in the Titan's Tower, but his relief was short-lived. For now, not only was Raven missing, but the entire planet was engulfed in seemingly supernatural black storm clouds, and the sound of demonic laughter could be heard resounding through the air. Probably not a great sign. The gang was uncertain how to proceed in seeking out their missing chum, but fortunately, former Teen Titan and occasional psychic Lilith showed up and had a plan. Hooray! 
Lilith reckoned that by gathering those closest to the absent empath and leading them in a seance, she might be able to contact their perfidiously parented pal. To that end, the gang contacted relatively recently resigned rapid runner Wally West, a.k.a. Kid Flash. This formerly fleet-footed fellow had quit the team in part because of his conflicted feelings towards Raven, but also secretly in part because his speed-based superpowers were malfunctioning, and the continually conflicted Kid Flash was worried that if he kept trying to run fast, it might kill him. Despite his misgivings, the junior Wizard of Wiz decided to accompany his amigos back to the Titan's T-shaped headquarters. Everybody held hands and Lilith focused her intermittently active intuitive abilities on a pair of rings that Raven had mysteriously left behind. The spooky ceremony was a mixed success. A surprisingly sinister-sounding Raven spoke through Lilith and told her super pals to fuck off and leave her alone on account of she was evil now and thought her dad Trigon was keen. Then Lilith's voice changed, and Raven's mom, the sorceress Arella, began speaking through the temperamentally telepathic teen. Arella informed her adolescent audience that the mystic realm of Azeroth was under attack and needed their aid. The Titans instantly found themselves transported to Azeroth, where Trigon's forces were laying the city to waste. Our titular teens did their best to save the bearded denizens of the magical city, but to little avail. Within minutes, the entire city and all those within were destroyed. Bummer. Meanwhile, back in New York, Raven had finally returned home, and it would appear that our Papa problem-possessing protagonist had undergone a bit of a makeover. The primary difference in Raven's appearance was that she was bright red and, and sported an extra pair of peepers in the middle of her forehead. Apparently, this bold new look afforded the once-introverted Enchantress some sorely lacking self-confidence, for she seemed to take an active interest in public speaking. The gist of her address to a crowd of concerned onlookers was as follows. My dad Trigon is coming. You'd better do what he says. Also, you guys are fucked. When she finished speaking, Raven sent her bird-shaped soul self to perch atop the Titan's Tower. The astral avian avatar shimmered briefly, and from its depths emerged the enormous hideous figure of Trigon himself. Gadzooks! Were our young heroes destroyed along with the rest of Azeroth? If not, how did they escape? And what lesson can be learned from Raven apparently betraying the Earth to her demonic father? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Nope, they're fine. I don't know, magic? Sure, let's say magic. And I'm gonna go with never trust a bird. That one's kind of an evergreen. A sinister-looking raven repeats her little speech about how awesome slash megacidal her dad is, and that everybody must obey him, while he stands behind her looking menacing. The two are standing on what was once the Titan Tower, but has now been transformed into an ominous, T-shaped stone stalagmite to better match Trigon's aesthetic sensibilities. The world may be enslaved by him, but that big red fashion plate is a slave to a consistent motif, am I right? Apparently, the uninhabited void dimension in which Trigon had been imprisoned was equipped with a solo flex and a shitload of protein, because dude is ripped. He's also like 75 feet tall, which is a new look for him. The camera crews gather around and videotape the huge red four-eyed antlered demon as he reads a few prepared remarks. Trigon faces the throng of reporters and terrified New Yorkers and says, 
You know how my daughter just told you that I own your planet and you all have to do what I say or I'll torture you to death? Well, what she said. Fair enough. They do say that brevity is the soul of world domination. When he's finished speaking, the two eyes on Trigon's head that would traditionally be viewed as extraneous start glowing red, and instantly the architecture of downtown Manhattan is changed into a nightmarish hellscape. I mean, a different nightmarish hellscape. Am I right? I kid. But no, it is actually really horrifying. Giant stone hands thrust up from the concrete, clutching desperately at the sides of the twisted buildings, which retain their general shape, but are now uninhabitable stone replicas of the architecture that they once were. Giant demon skulls are incorporated into the crumbling ruins of once-proud edifices, and huge tendrils, apparently composed of twisted and tortured souls, dominate the skyline. On the plus side, I bet the rent is a little more reasonable. Back in what used to be Azeroth, the Titans regain consciousness and find themselves miraculously unscathed and sitting atop a large pile of rubble. Raven's mom Arella is there and seems just as confused as our heroes. Nothing of the fabled city she once called home seems to remain. Even the sky is empty. The Titans reflect on the fact that none of the Azerathians had seemed upset about their imminent destruction, and indeed seemed to embrace the apocalypse the way a zealot might the rapture resenting the Titans for their attempts to intervene. The young heroes are distracted from their rumination about what a bunch of weird beards the dearly departed denizens of Azeroth were, when they notice that Lilith is talking all funny and has donned a cape, similar to the one that Raven wears. Huh. The gang's more peculiar than usual part-time precognitive pal speaks in an intentionally inscrutable manner that seems familiar to her teammates, and seems to be constantly staring off into the middle distance, yet doesn't seem to be on the verge of a flashback. Weird. She informs them that Raven's rings, which they used to perform the seance earlier, must have protected them from getting blown up with the rest of the city. Sure. Why not? The DC Universe has a well-established precedent of rings having inexplicable and largely nonsensical powers, so I buy that. Lilith goes on to tell the team that she can sense that Trigon is making a real mess of things on Earth, and they should probably go and fight him or something. That sounds good to Arella, who's more than a little peeved at all her pals getting blown up and her daughter being missing. She's pretty sore at her ex right now, and the idea of poking Trigon in one of his several eyes is pretty appealing. The only problem is... How are they going to get back to Earth? Once again, magic nonsense rings to the rescue. Lilith asks the rings nicely, and suddenly everyone finds themselves standing in the middle of New York. They're not crazy about what Trigon's done with the place. Once they recover from the initial shock brought on by the rather dramatic renovations the planet's new landlord has made, the Titans start poking around to try to get some idea of the scope of the Hieronymus Boschification that the world seems to have undergone. Starfire does a quick flyover of the area and reports back that the good news is, thus far the changes in architecture seem limited to Manhattan, but the bad news is the affected area seems to be growing. Also, Trigon is sitting with his eyes closed atop a throne on the top of the T-shaped stalagmite that used to be their headquarters. Oh, and also their headquarters is now a giant T-shaped stalagmite. She decided not to wake Trigon up in case he might be grumpy. Probably a good call. While Coriander is flying around, Wally decides to go on a little sightseeing stroll of his own. As he is walking along, examining the melting flesh and calcified buildings, the former kid flash bumps into Raven. Doesn't go great. 
Raven peers into the depths of Wally's soul and turns his psyche inside out. Fairly typical of a chance encounter with an ex, actually. When the gang hears Wally's cry of anguish, the Titans rush over to assist him and are startled by Raven's new look. Their fiendish, four-eyed former friend tells the other Titans that she's stoked to see them. So that she can enslave them and give them to her evil dad as a planet-warming present. Sick burn. The gang isn't very supportive of Raven's decision to go into the family business, so they opt for the tried-and-true Titan tactic of attacking her for her own good. The as-of-late atrocious avian avatar-assuming enchantress magically smacks her old buddies around for a minute. Then, Jericho gets an idea. Uh-oh. Seeing as it went so well the last couple times he tried it, the recidivist Renfair refugee decides to use his creepy-ass powers to try to once again take over Raven's body. Much to no one's surprise, this plan backfires. When she realizes what Jericho is up to, Raven blasts him with a psychic whammy that leaves the lemur-eyed lug in a catatonic state of shock. Hooray! Sorry. Also, I wonder which set of Raven's peepers he was trying to make eye contact with. Maybe she just grew the extra set of eyes as a decoy pair because she was tired of Jericho trying to possess her. Probably. With Joe out of the way, Raven turns her attention to the rest of the team and is like, You know what? Fuck you guys. My soul's been split between good and evil, so now I'm going to split your souls in half and make each of you face an evil version of yourself in a personalized hell of your own psyche's design. So there. Also, you should probably forget that thing I said about my soul being split. I know it sounds like it's a pretty big clue and possibly the key to my and through me Trigon's defeat, but it's probably nothing. I'm just regular old unconflicted evil over here. See, I've got extra eyes and everything. Pretty evil. Now, as I was saying, fuck you guys! Lightning flashes, and in an instant, Nightwing, Cyborg, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Starfire, and Wally disappear, each transported to face their respective dark selves in customized nightmares. Nightwing finds himself in a creepy high-tech torture lab. The Batman's corpse is hooked up to a fancy, apparently lethal device, and Dick's replacement as Robin, a kid named Jason Todd, kneels crying beside the corpse of his fallen mentor. A black-and-white negative image of Nightwing with glowing red eyes tells his counterpart that the Batman died because Dick abandoned him, and that the new Robin sucks, and that Dick isn't even good enough to make it on his own and will always be a sidekick, and that Dick is a stupid name. Okay, he doesn't say that last part out loud, but... He says it with his red glowing eyes. An emotional Nightwing reacts angrily and socks his evil doppelganger in the face. Cyborg wakes up in Central Park. He encounters Sarah Sims, his sometimes, but not really, but then again maybe, love interest. But she recoils from him, disgusted by his cybernetic parts. Harsh. Vic's evil doppelganger shows up. Unlike actual Vic, his black-and-white, glowing, red-eyed counterpart has no robot bits. Sarah runs to his side, and together they call Cyborg a monstrous freak who has no right to live. The kids from Sarah's class show up, and like Vic's reverse image, they too are without prostheses. The children join in the name-calling. Evil Vic tells Good Vic that he should just go ahead and remove the mechanical parts that are keeping him alive, and that no one will miss him. Man! Evil Vic is a real asshole. 
Donna is transported to her apartment. She sees a negative image of herself strangling the shit out of her husband, Terry Long, and shit-talking him as he does so. That seems a bit much evil, Donna. One or the other. Regular Donna cradles her dying husband in her arms, and the sinister Xerox copy of her says that maybe if she renounces her past and her heritage and everything that she believes in, Terry will live. When she hears that, regular Donna punches evil Donna through the wall. Hooray! Or maybe not so hooray. Because as the Amazonian clobbers her fiendish facsimile, a low chuckle of demonic laughter can be heard. Which is probably not a good sign. Beast Boy sees a creepy colorless clone of himself killing and eating everyone he has ever cared about. Yikes! Not exactly subtle, but chilling nonetheless. Adopting the form of a two-headed stone pterodactyl, Dark Beast Boy munches on a bloody hunk of Victor and tells Gar that he has always been responsible for the deaths of those around him, and he always will be. Dang. I was kind of hoping that the reverse image Beast Boy would just be kind of soft-spoken and would use his privilege to advocate for feminist causes. I mean, maybe he does that when he's not chomping on Gar's closest pals, but I kind of doubt it. Coriander finds herself back on her spicy homeworld of Tamarind. As she watches in stunned disbelief, the farty Godzilla-looking slave traders known as the Gordanians put the rest of her family in shackles. Starfire's black-and-white evil twin tells her that unless she turns herself over to the gassy space lizards and returns to her previous life of enslavement, they will destroy her planet. Finally, Wally West looks around and realizes that he is back in the bedroom of his suburban Midwestern home but what he sees is hardly comforting to the semi-retired speedster. Wally's corrupted carbon copy is having sex with the demonic version of Raven. When evil Wally notices that he has an audience, he gets up out of the bed and invites his panic-stricken better half to take part in the world's creepiest infernal threesome. As a petrified Wally ponders this perfidious proposal, he notices that like Raven, his malicious mirror image is sporting a superfluous set of eyeballs. Back in New York, Lilith and Arella tend to a still catatonic Jericho. Lilith senses that the Titans are still alive, but are in a state of psychic torment. As the sporadic psychic contemplates her course of action, we see that a nearby tentacle made of damned and twisted souls is adorned with contorted representations of our embattled heroes. Damn. Seems like now might be a pretty good time to give those magic rings a shot, eh, Lilith? Like... Maybe see if you can make a glowing projection of an enormous boxing glove to punch Trigon in the dick? Oh, unless Raven's power rings have an impurity that makes them ineffective against demon dicks. Yeah, that's probably it. Too bad. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how are you doing? I am a little sleepy, but otherwise... Well, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. That's, uh, you got a haircut. I did. I cut all of the hair on top of my head off, but I kept a big bushy mustache because I wanted to look more like the guy that Grover brings a hamburger to in the Sesame Street skits. I sent you these videos. You watched them. Big hamburger, little hamburger. All I remember is Bert and Ernie that you sent me. Oh, this was like two weeks ago. What? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I always said to do Sesame Street skits. <laughs> I will review 
them. Well, I want to believe you, but I mean, frankly, your work on which things are near and which are far still needs a lot of work. That's why I send you these things. They're educational. You're counting to 12 like a champ. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Did you know that the Pointer Sisters wrote that song? What? Yeah, that's oh. the Pointer Sisters. That's great. Yeah. You want to talk about a comic book? Sure. Corey, what did you think about this comic book? I think we have been avoiding talking about it because it's so creepy. It is a scary comic book. Yeah. I got I got pretty spooked. It is pretty freaky. Yeah. Lisa's been watching a TV show lately called Channel Zero. It's on the Shutter Network. And wait, like Public Enemy made scary shows? That's what I was thinking, too. Apparently, it's unrelated to Public Enemy. But it's a very, very creepy show. I've only seen, like, an episode and a half of season two. But it does a similar thing in terms of, like, there's dream logic and alternate universe shit. But uh, this comic book does a great job of capturing that really unsettling tone of nightmares. It does. And when I finished it, I was left a little bit with the hope of, well, maybe Trigon and Raven didn't really kill all those hundreds or thousands of people because... Because there's know, an element of mindfuck going on. Like, yeah, the Titans are all, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this doing the whole, let's confront your greatest fear Oof. thing. And I was like, okay, well, that's probably psychological, mostly. So maybe all the other stuff Trigon is doing is too? But his track record of destroying worlds and whatnot makes me think no. It's tough to tell. Maybe it is something that is being done, but then it can be undone because of how crazy powerful he is. Or just how comic books work. <laughs> that too. Yeah, maybe Kid Flash will get his speed back and he'll run around the world super fast in the other direction and uh, undo time. And then maybe die. Maybe? Because it's uh, hurting him still he, to he's run. He's not liking it. And, and also, it seems like thinking about stuff and having feelings is hurting him real bad too. Which is maybe... The most I've ever identified with Wally. <laughs> You'd think that at least Donna and Dick would be better at confronting their fear, seeing as they already had to confront their greatest fears with those uh, hallucinogenic drug balloons that Mr. Oh, Jupiter gave yeah, them. Yeah. Like, they've got some experience with mm -hmm. this shit. Yep. But I guess maybe it's something that you don't necessarily get better at the more you try. I mean, I guess Donna doesn't at least seem to be afraid of going bald anymore which had been a central component of her previous greatest fear. Mm -hmm. But just the general tone of darkness and disease is prevalent throughout the book. Part of the way that's carried off is throughout the Dark Titans segments, what would normally be white space in between the panels is bright red. And it just kind of freaked me out a little bit. It's a freaky comma. Mm-hmm. Like, I can imagine being, like, a younger kid reading this. It would have spooked the shit out of me, mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. Yeah, both both Wolfman and Perez do a great job conveying a sense of horror throughout. It's very, very well done. And part of that is aided by the return of Romeo Tangal to the Inks. It's nice to see him back. I gotta say, I kind of feel the way that Marv Wolfman does when he welcomes him back in the... Letters column. I don't know if you read that. Oh, I didn't. No, I didn't have it in my... Uh, it's a brief aside, but it's kind of a backhanded compliment where he was just like, man, George Perez can't do his own inks anymore just because he doesn't have enough time. So it's great that Romeo Tangal's back. Oh. But it is one of those where it's I kind of had the same feeling where I'm like, 
I am so stoked to see Romeo Tangal doing the inks anymore. If it was going to be anybody but George Perez that he was taking over the inks for, I would be way more stoked. But I think the way Wolfman phrases it is, George and I would like to welcome back Romeo Tangal as George's inker extraordinaire. Romeo inked most of the first four years of the New Teen Titans in our other newsstand Titans book and built up quite a following. When George decided to sadly relinquish the inking chores of this title, Romeo was the obvious choice. So it's like a little bit of build-up, but it is just like, yeah, but we are all super bummed that George isn't doing his own inks anymore. Mm -hmm. But that being said, it is really nice to see Romeo Tangal back because I really do like his work. Yep. The other change in the creative crew that we have here is that Bob LaPan is doing the lettering instead of Todd Klein. And he does a fine job. I miss Todd Klein. There are a couple of instances in which I was like, hmm, there's something that should have been done here differently. The main two are there is a gorgeous double page spread when the Titans first come back from the ruins of Azeroth and find themselves in the nightmarish hellscape of New York. And they are very tiny in the middle of it. And there is a word bubble that Dick has that is just like, oh my god. I feel like if it was Klein, he would have had the word smaller in a bigger balloon. Mm-hmm. Which I, I feel like kind of drives home more the, the emptiness. Uh, LaPan does do a nice job with Raven having distinctive word balloons, mm-hmm. which look really cool. But the other one, which I wanted to talk about a little bit, is Trigon's addressing the crowd through the TV screen. Mostly it is narrated by Larry Garter, who is here for Wub's News, mm-hmm. the home station for Bethany Snow's Snowstorm. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of her journalistic style. He's just a patsy either. for Brother B. Mm-hmm. But there is kind of a confusing thing where there is no transition from Larry talking to Trigon talking, and it created a weird disconnect. Larry is talking and... He says, reports have come in from all nations that so-called devil worshippers are claiming that Trigon is their deliverer and has come to Earth to claim his dominion. This reporter offers no opinion. Well, you kind of just did by saying that, Larry. Larry goes on to say, whatever the truth may be, there is no doubt that he is responsible for the strange dark storm blanketing the Earth. Wait, Trigon is about to speak. What's weird is the way that the words are broken up. It's... Larry saying that is over the first of three images of Trigon's face, and the other two are of Trigon speaking. So it creates this thing where, wait, is Trigon saying that part, or is Larry saying the following part? I mean, obviously he does say Trigon is about to speak, but the lettering is still the same, and it's presented in the same format. And he says, uh, Your planet is mine, as are all of your lives and all of your souls. You will obey my every command without hesitation. Failure to do so is treason, and I do not tolerate treason to any degree. Punishment for such actions will be swift. It did make me wonder for a second if Larry was trying for a coup there. Mm. If that's just Larry saying that shit. Because the next thing that happens is Trigon has like his second set of eyeballs flash, and that's where I think everybody in New York gets twisted into these sculptures of tortured souls. Mm-hmm. But the preamble to that is... Larry, if it's Larry talking, then it could just be like Trigon being like, Jesus, Larry, and being pissed at him. And that's what the repercussions are, because otherwise he's saying, like, you better do what I say or you're fucked. And then nobody doesn't do what he says. And they're all still fucked. Also, 
a little bit unnecessary for Trigon to reiterate what essentially Raven said in the previous panels. Mm-hmm. I he think basically you... said, listen to my dad, or you're all fucked. And he's like, yeah, listen to me, or you're all fucked. Bzzz. Yeah, and also that's what she says for the first couple of pages of this comic book. I think he would actually be more effective if he was just silent and then like maybe said one or two words at that point. Or, if Raven is acting as his hype man, if at that point he just busted into a totally sick rhyme. But, I mean, that would make sense. Or him just like being like the strong, silent guy while his manager does all the talking would also make sense. But him repeating a portion of her threat is dumb. Doesn't really get anything across. Yeah, maybe it was the newsman like you uh, surmised. Yeah. Fucking Larry. It's like, here's my shot. So, potentially, if Larry had just kept his mouth shut... Everything would have been fine. New York wouldn't be a twisted dreamscape of tortured bodies and such. Yeah. Nice job, Larry. Typical media. (sighs) Wubs. Fake news. (laughs) Ha ha ha. So what do you think is going on with Lilith in this issue? If I had to guess, I would say that the parts which are redeemable of Raven somehow found a home in Lilith. That's Uh, what I kind of came to, too, but it took some puzzling on my part to like, wait, is that what's happening? Because at first I was like, is it Azar talking through her? Well, she's acting super weirder than normal. Sure. And uh, she's wearing a cape that looks like raven's cape that she didn't have before and that's also something that's kind of funny because while they're recovering themselves on the ruins of azerath the titans are just kind of all grabbing their heads and be like being like what happened Mm -hmm. oh no a whole city's destroyed and beast boy's like hurry up you guys you've got to see this and dick's like gar please not now understandable reaction Mm -hmm. but he follows up it up with this isn't a dick (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this isn't a dick joke, you guys, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, this isn't a joke, dick. Get over here. Now. And it's Lilith wearing a cape. Yeah. It's just like, you guys aren't going to believe this shit. Lilith put on a cape. And it doesn't go with her outfit at all. It really doesn't. It's a shame. That is not like Lilith. <laughs> But yeah, I like that it freaked Beast Boy out so much. Because she hasn't started talking yet. Once she starts talking, then it is way more clear that it's like, oh, something's up with her. And Wonder Girl's like, I've seen that look in her eyes before. On Raven. And so that made me, it's like, wait, is Trigon speaking through her? Is Arella speaking through her? No, because Arella's right there next to them. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's going on with Lilith in this issue. I think there are potentially a couple of other things that are going on with Lilith in this issue. One thing is that it kind of seems like, to an extent, she might be back on her bullshit again. Her fake, uh... Her fake psychic bullshit. I sense danger. (laughs) When she's talking about the other Titans, she says, I sense defeat. I sense pain. I sense they're fighting for their very soul. Now she's saying that she's looking at a pillar of the distorted faces of the Titans as they are struggling for their very souls. And so I think at that point saying, I sense pain, I sense defeat as she is hearing, ah, I think that's kind of like, wait a minute, by I sense that this is happening, does she mean her sense of sight? I wonder to what extent she's using that. She's like, I sense danger. Yeah, I mean, people are shooting. Like you heard the gunshots. It's like, yes, that's my sense of hearing. That's just like an idiom that she speaks in. 
I sense that you just farted. Do you mean I, you smell that I just farted? Yes, my sense of smell informs me that you just farted. Mm-hmm. Well, not technically inaccurate. No, technically correct. But a little deceitful. When you grab your temples and you look all concentrated <laughs> when you say you're sensing something, it does imply there's some ESP going on. Yeah, so I think she might be playing into that. And then if she gets caught on it later, she's like, I wasn't lying. Clearly, they were fighting for their souls. Mm-hmm, and I used my senses to determine that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I'm a pretty good titan. She may be up to her old tricks again. Well, I think maybe the reason she is up to that is because she is feeling a little bit insecure. I'm sure, for the most part, she is relieved that she doesn't have to fight an evil doppelganger of herself. But why doesn't she? She's a titan. She didn't get. To, we didn't get to see her do it, and we didn't get to see Joe. No, do Joe it is clearly zonked out from trying to lay another psychic whammy on Raven because it worked out so good for him before. Maybe he doesn't have to. He gets a pass on the like fighting your greatest fear of yourself because his superpower is fucking awful. That was what I was wondering, and I feel a little bit ripped off that we don't get to see what the comic book feels his fault is. Because thus far, he's been presented as what I think the writer intends to be a kind of flawless character. He's like super sweet, super nice. Yeah, art lover. And I would have liked to see what the comic thinks his dark side is and what his fears are. Because we've seen through his portrayal a lot of issues surrounding consent, which I find incredibly creepy and bad. But I would like to see like a... Gross. A negative image of Jericho where he's just like... I fucking hate art, it's stupid, and I'm talking all the time. Oh, I see, so yeah, the black and white, red-eyed, evil versions of the Titans. Yeah, it would have been cool to see Jericho's. He probably would have had creepy lemur eyes the whole time. Oh, man. Maybe he would just have tiny little beady eyes. Yeah, opposite. Yeah. Yeah, and Lilith, I guess we didn't get to see hers because whatever's going on potentially with her connection to Raven? Yeah, it's. I, I feel like they're kind of underdeveloped characters in different ways, and I think it might have fleshed them out a little bit if we had seen a dark reflection of them, or at least what the writer would see as a dark reflection of them. But, oh well. Do you think when Dick finds himself in a strange dimension with an evil nightmare version of the Titans... And they're led by a powerful foe who has a prominent accessory featuring a depiction of his own head. Part of him was thinking, oh, fuck, I didn't bring my tiny pliers. Oh, shit. Yeah, probably. Like, he's faced a pretty similar situation to this before when he got stuck in limbo and he had to fight the gargoyle. And, like, it turned out in that situation, the solution was you crush the head-shaped accessory of your foe. With some tiny pliers you keep in your utility belt. Yeah, you just gotta get up to uh, Trigon's codpiece and give it, the old <laughs> give it a little squeeze, squeeze a roof. <laughs> yep. See what happens. <laughs> I can't see how this plan could possibly <laughs> fail. Just wait for him to sl- <laughs> fall asleep. <laughs> Sneak up there. <laughs> Do you think the Nightwing costume also has uh, tiny pliers in its utility belt? I don't see why he would have gotten rid of them after I mean, it saved the day. With I think I would work. carry those around with me all the goddamn time. Yeah. I also wonder if somewhere during this scenario, Mal Duncan is just like, Oh shit, I know what this is. I've dealt with dark twisted dimensions before. Karen, put on some Calypso music. Get out a broomstick. 
Every limbo boy and girl. We're gonna up, limbo up, it out. The limbo world. Yep. He keeps limboing throughout the Titans encounter with Trigon, and then when it finally ends, he's like, whew, that was hard work, but it worked. Well, yeah, I mean, Trigon's, what, 75, 80 feet tall? Yeah. Good luck. Uh, yeah, he's beat, not going to win beat, any limbo contests. Mal at a, at a limbo. No, I mean, you see that Mal has uh, maybe gotten a little bit out of shape, but I bet he's still pretty limber. I think so. Certainly could out-limbo a 75-foot-tall demon. Oh, yeah. Easy. I probably could do that. Yeah. That's the attitude. Not volunteering, but I'm just saying I'm shorter. Look, if the shit goes down, it's nice to know that we'll be on the same limbo team versus a four-eyed, antlered, 75-foot-tall demon. Yeah, I guess that is comforting. All right, here's the limbo. Now, you mentioned that maybe Dick might want to sneak up on Trigon while he's sleeping to tweak that cod piece and potentially uh, free everyone from their horrible situation. Yep. There might be a different time when he might be able to sneak up on him. We see that Trigon is perched on a throne atop the Titan Tower, and he seems really just lost in his own world. I think Starfire says he doesn't even see me. Hold on, there's something on the heliport. Trigon? He's not moving. He doesn't even seem to know I'm here. He's got his eyes closed and he seems to be concentrating real hard Mm -hmm. as he's sitting on a throne. I'm wondering if he's taking a poop. I mean, is the T for the Titan Tower? Is that T for toilet? Is that his ultimate way of disrespecting his foes? Is that he's pooping on their headquarters? He's sitting on a throne oblivious to everything. He's got no pants on. True. He just ate a big meal of Azeroth. True. I'm just saying, I think he might have turned the Titan Tower into a big tea for toilet. Um, wow, that didn't occur to me. I just thought he was concentrating on turning the city, you know, evil. No, I think he's concentrating on turning Azeroth into little floating pieces of Azeroth in the uh, Titan Tower. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, high fat content, I guess. Yeah. Maybe it disagreed with him a little bit. Ooh. I don't think it would have, actually. Azeroth did not seem particularly spicy. Very bland. Mm-hmm. We can get the Hive guys in here to, <laughs> to deconstruct that. Uh, oh, rank it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where's Hive when you need him? We see, well, Raven is giving her second Hype Man speech, which is, again, pretty inspired. She's a very, very competent Hype Man. The Titan's Tower has been turned into a giant tea stalactite, possibly toilet. But we see opposite of it, there's just a billboard on top of one of the buildings that just says Teen Titans in block letters. Oh, yeah. What the fuck are they advertising? Is that part of, like, Gar's PR team that he paid a million dollars to figure out that he should be called Changeling, which he shouldn't? Man, that's a good question. It seems like they don't really need to advertise themselves. They're already famous and more or less well-liked. And they're not selling their services in any way. And there's also no statement that's being made on the sign other than Teen Titans. It's a thing that exists. Is there maybe like a Teen Titans TV show within the Teen Titans comic? Or a Teen Titans comic within the Teen Titans comic? And if so, is there a Teen Titans comic within that comic? Well, and if so, is there a Teen Titans comic within that comic? 
And if so, is there a Teen <laughs> Titans comic within that comic? Um, yeah. Oh, there is? Yeah. Oh, good to know. Do you want to talk about um, Starfire's negotiation skills? Uh, how do you mean? When uh, Raven's being real mean and she's like, Raven, please stop killing your friends! I feel like some version of that <laughs> must play out in the bars of our country. <laughs> Nightly. Yeah. As a bartender, it's pretty close to that sometimes. Yeah, that is actually remarkably similar to conversations that I have heard. Raven, I love you. We all do. We all want to help you. Please stop killing your friends. Love? <laughs> you speak of love? That's probably what she's saying. Yeah. There is no love. There is only Zool. I mean, fear. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about the uh, various titans and their escapades as they deal with their dark doppelgangers? Definitely. That's some nice alliteration, Corey. Danke. <laughs> oh. Speaking of D-words, let's start with Dick. Ha! It's rough, man. His, I think, freaked me out maybe the most. He shows up and Batman is chained to a crazy, high-tech torture device in some kind of a lab. But he's not being tortured. He has been killed. So it's Batman's corpse that we see there. And he rushes to it because this has just happened and he recognizes Batman's scream of agony. He gets there and Robin, the new Robin, Jason Todd, is there just bawling his eyes out and saying, Oh, shit. I fucked up. I couldn't do nothing. And we see a negative image of Nightwing with glowing red eyes is there and starts sassing the shit out of Dick. It's this weird thing where he's like, you're nothing. You're not good enough. But also you're the best because if you had been Robin when this happened, you could have saved Batman. Nobody else could. But you should never have stopped being Robin because you can't hack it on your own. And so like laying a guilt trip at the same time as it's just like negging him and shit. It's really creepy. Ironically, I suspect all Batman's fault in the end for being such a shitty dad figure. Oh, totally. Because, yeah, basically it's the, <laughs> you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough. The only way you could hope to possibly be close to good enough is if you subsume your individuality as Nightwing back into this, like, lame version of Batman that's Robin. Yeah. But, I mean, we've kind of seen a similar thing with... I talked about the Mr. Jupiter storyline back in the 70s. Yeah. But it was a similar greatest fear. It, it was, again, just like, Not good I enough. know that I can never make a mistake because the only way I can keep up with Batman is if I am perfect all the time and I never will be. It was really effective. It was a little bit weird to me that, like, he's just seen this dude kill Batman and at least heavily imply that he's going to torture this little boy and probably kill him too. That bums him out. But the evil dude says like, you're not good enough. And then he just screams, no! And then he punches him. Like it says something about his priorities. <laughs> like, I'm somebody, not good enough. Somebody murders your dad and you're just like, well, shit. And then they're like, and you suck. He's like, I don't suck! Bam! Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the fact that his inner bad guy and like all the titans that have to face mm -hmm. these visions it's them part of themselves that they don't like so he's like 
Right. Is it cathartic? He's punching out evil dick? I don't know. I think the reason that I said that this was the one that, like, was the most effective to me was because this is the only one of the Titans adventures that seems that it might be happening in an unaltered reality. You know? Like, I mean, altered by Trigon through his invasion and through this character, this dark Nightwing being brought into existence and doing these things. But then when we meet Cyborgs, which is the next one, we see that Sarah Sims has undergone a huge change and also all of the children that he encounters no longer have their prostheses. And so it's like, okay, this is an alternate reality or a reality that has been significantly warped in a huge way. But when you first see it, it's just like, well, Batman got murdered. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no indication that all this is happening just in his mind or in a special torture created just for him. So I, it was freaky to look at. I think the most emotionally affecting ones for me were uh, Cyborg as the next one. And then also later on, which we'll get to Beast Boy. But let's talk about Cyborg first. Yeah. So fear of being othered. What's interesting to me about cyborgs, I mean, there's a lot. It's very emotionally resonant that he is rejected by these people who had embraced him in the past. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is that the dark mirror version of himself is fully human instead of fully robot. It would seem more in keeping with some of his fears in the past and the way he thinks of himself would be that like the dark reflection of him would be his mechanical side mm. but in this like he he seems to be more embracing his mechanical side i mean he's still being othered because of it and being rejected because of it and that that's part of his fear but he isn't worried about that side of himself it's his humanity that he sees as flawed yeah i mean that's i, I think that makes sense though because it's sarah and the kids are choosing fully human him over you know partially human yeah, and, part, and fully human him is a major jerk. Yeah, good looking kid though. <laughs> I'm just saying, major jerk, good looking <laughs> jerk. Yeah, yeah, the way that it's dealing with him and his like dismay at being rejected by his community is this affecting? Yeah, that one, the cyborg one, was particularly creepy because evil, fully human cyborg was basically saying, um, get rid of your machine bits, which will kill you. So, like, you're, yeah. you're not good enough, go <laughs> die, really. Yeah, Ugh. and you can see that there's part of him, at least, that must be tempted by that. Mm -hmm. And just be like, yeah, I guess I probably should. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never be... I'll never be accepted. ...what I want. Yeah. I'll never be accepted. Creepy. Sad. Yeah. Then, on a lighter note, we go to Donna, who is killing Terry. <laughs> <laughs> This, this one, for me, and, and maybe you've got a different read on it, was interesting in that it didn't play back as directly to the fears that they had from the balloon trip out. No. This, this was more of a new thing for her, I felt like. And it was honestly a little bit confusing as to what it was supposed to represent. I feel like the first two were pretty direct in what fears or even potentially sins they are supposed to represent. Hers, I, I read, is, like, worried about being selfish or doing stuff for herself that she wanted and being judged for it. So, like, giving up her kind of godlike Amazonian status mm -hmm. to hang out with Terry. Yeah, no, I understand that. That I, I could see just being like, oh, jeez. 
what have I done? <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's weird is the way that the doppelganger presents its case, which is really different than the others, in that her doppelganger is super inconsistent. The doppelganger is chastising Donna for having abandoned her past and renounced Paradise Island and its ways in favor of her marriage. She also is strangling the shit out of Terry Long like he was a cat and she was possessed by a witch. And then as Terry is lying dead, Donna says, I, I never wanted Terry to be in danger. Honey, don't die. Honey, don't die. And then the doppelganger says, you don't belong in man's world. You no longer belong on Paradise Island either. Renounce your origins. Renounce your heritage. Renounce your past and perhaps the insipid male will live. She's just said you did all of these things already. So why isn't Terry alive? It, it's just confusing in the way it states its case. I t well, I think that's that's her fear, right? Is that she can't be both of these things. Like live in a human world and be a kind of a demigod. That makes sense. But I feel like it would have, in the light of what the doppelganger has already said, if she would tell her to renounce her love for Terry instead. And then maybe she would let him live. You know? I, I don't know. I will say, all of the depictions, most of them have like a one-shot that's a close-up of the doppelganger's face, and the emotion that we see portrayed in them, how different they look despite looking identical to the hero version, is really, really well done. Mm -hmm. Like, Donna's character's evil smirk is so good. It is full of scorn. Yeah. And it's really well rendered. Donna has kind of a similar arc to Dick in terms of, like, she just saw this person kill a person that she loves in front of her. But she doesn't really lose her shit until the doppelganger says, Renounce your past, and perhaps the insipid male will live. And Donna says, You want me to forsake everything that I am? Never! I'll kill you first! And then she punches her through the wall. Might have been nice if the Terry killing had that kind of reaction. I mean, I get it. I'm just saying. You're on Team Terry now? I'm not on Team Terry. I'm just, uh, I think there's an odd escalation of emotion that is brought on by dissing people as opposed to killing loved ones in front of them. That happens a couple of times there. Yeah, it does. But the crux of it is, don't be yourself. I have to be myself. Right. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. I, I would have liked it better if she had yelled, I gotta be me, as she punched the doppelganger through the That would have been pretty great. Then we get to Beast Boy's fear. Damn. Also, probably the most well-founded. Yeah. He is worried that everyone close to him has died and that he is responsible for those deaths. And so he sees a evil version of him, which is a total fucking badass, but that has also just killed all of Doom Patrol and is munching on Robot Man's innards. Doom Patrol is lying dead on the floor. And so is Terra. And then in the background, we see Questor and the Teen Titans hanging out. And we kind of get the impression that they're going to be next. And that's kind of what the evil Beast Boy thing says. And he brings up also Beast Boy's feelings of inadequacy, which have been so often underlined in this comic book. But it generates a great deal of sympathy for Beast Boy in a way that the comic has often failed at. I mean, in part just because it is so gruesome. You see this two-headed pterodactyl eating his friends, and Beast Boy goes to uh, rescue Jillian, and the, and the monster version of himself is like, Oh, you picked the girl, Jillian. Good. 
You kill her while I rend this one, and together we'll slay all of your loved ones, as we always have, as we always will. And as he says that, he turns back into his human form and is munching on a handful of cyborg's guts. It is fucking chilling. It is super creepy. Yeah, maybe despite the twisted soul panels and all that shit, maybe the creepiest panel in the book. Mm -hmm. Powerful creepy. Powerful. Then we see that Starfire's fear is well-founded. She returns to Tamarin and sees that all of her people have been enslaved by the shitty fart lizards. Yep. And then her dark doppelganger tells her that in order to save them, she has to submit to slavery again. And we see how much that freaks her out. I really liked that. I feel like the comic book has kind of glossed over the reveal of all of the trauma that Starfire underwent in her days when she was enslaved by the Gordanians. And I think it really needs to be addressed that, like, no, that was fucking horrifying. And having that be her greatest fear is important. Yeah, that and the fact that her sacrifice of leaving everything that was familiar and basically exiling herself so her people could be free was a failure. Yeah. I mean, what a fear. I mean, I like that the character doesn't have her past trauma define her. And I like that it didn't change that she is essentially a very sweet and loving person. And I think that's great. But it is something that she has to deal with. And I like it when the comic isn't just like, oh, never happened. And so, yeah, it's not given a ton of screen time here. I think hers is the shortest of the dark doppelganger stories, but still pretty effective. And then we get to the final one, which is Wally. And his is super creepy. But I think also, I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but okay, I still have a crush on somebody that I know is evil. Um, That makes me worried I'm evil too. Even his hair makes little devil horns when he's about to get down with evil Raven. I think that's part of it. I I think I was maybe trying to read more into it that he is worried about succumbing to his lust uh, over his better instincts. And I wasn't sure if they were trying to set up the different Titans as like being different sins, maybe. Because we see like with Dick, it's like I was maybe overreading it, but like the way that he reacted to like Batman being tortured versus him being belittled, like, was kind of a representation of pride. And this would be a representation, Wally would be like a representation of lust and that he's worried of succumbing to that and that is his his biggest fear. I do think it's also kind of telling that, like, even within this terrifying fantasy, Raven is seen as an object. She doesn't talk. She's a representation of something rather than a full person. And I think that kind of plays into the way that both she is written and that Wally sees her. Mm -hmm. Within all of the other fantasies, the other people would talk. It's just evil Wally talking to Wally. And I think that's part of what makes it so creepy. The mirror, mirror version of Wally is the only one that isn't overtly antagonistic towards him. And there's something about that that's just kind of more unsettling. Especially because he's like, hey, me, let's have a weird eyes wide shut sex party with demonic raven you know you wanna but if dark wally is gonna have his eyes wide shut he's gonna have to have a second set of blindfolds because at the end we see that uh 
Dark Wally has the Trigon four eyes going on too. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that jives with I think my synopsis earlier, though it was brief, where he succumbs to his desire, whether it's lust or love or some combination thereof, right. for something that's evil. Then therefore he is at least partially evil himself. Yeah. So I guess. I feel a little bad for saying he was finally over her in the last issue, because he bullshitted me. Yeah. He's a... Fuck you, man. That's right. He fooled you once. Fuck you. And then he fooled you twice. That's just the same thing, right? Yeah. You ready to get into the minutiae? Yes. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy? Well, Larry Garter was a real shit, but, but he had some nice green lapels. He did have some nice green lapels. I know this is 80... Six or so? No, it was 84. 84, okay. So, still the younger part of the 80s, but this is a very 70s looking jacket. It is a holdover from the remnants of disco, yeah. And I liked it. I like it too, especially because he doesn't appear to be wearing a shirt under the jacket. The fashion I found most noteworthy was the kids that are tormenting Cyborg. Uh, they got some nice duds on. We see the, the little girl with pigtails in particular who is sticking her tongue out at Victor and saying, Why don't you fall apart, you rusty junk pile? Is uh, wearing a nice blouse that is pink with a white collar that has different shaped polka dots on it and a bright yellow skirt, which is a nice look. Uh, and the gentleman to her left is wearing a blue and black striped polo shirt with a white collar that is outlined in red and it sounds a little bit busy but it is a really good look pretty snazzy yeah i mean these kids are jerks he's calling victor a stinking robot and that's his friend or it used to be but uh snappy dresser gotta give him that the one white boy in the picture is wearing a red baseball hat as he yells get away from us you freak which seems uh somewhat prescient <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't see the writing on it. But... Yeah, but it's implied, I think. Yeah. Well, I had a backup, which is something to note, too, that the trade uh, copy that I have, which is still on the fancy paper and everything, mm -hmm. had Terry Long in a maroon getup. Oh. Where he has some very 70s-looking slacks tight about the hip and the butt, flared at the ankles, and a very tight-fitting uh, vest with, like, a white business shirt on. And yeah, in the comics, it's the same outfit, essentially, but it is in a burnt umber instead of a maroon. And uh, I, I think it's a better look in the burnt umber. I don't know. I like the maroon because in the comic, it kind of gets lost in his hair. Oh. They're a similar, very similar shade. Interesting. Mm. I think maybe he dressed to, to his hair. Well, he's got a lot of it. Yeah, and it makes him look more like a werewolf, which I view as a net positive. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Uh, no. You went with a show-and-tell instead? I did. What was your show-and-tell? My show-and-tell was Dick's external processing when he first winds up in the, the horrific scene in which we, we find Batman dead. I like the way that he talks to himself because his kind of self-criticism, I think, speaks to his inner conflict. Mm. Huh? 
Where am I? Some sort of lab. But that's obvious. How did I get here? That scream! My lord, I know that scream. It's Batman's! Worry about that now. I got here later? If the Batman's in trouble, he needs me. I've got to. Oh god, god, no. And then he finds him. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like, no, wow, that's... Very, no inner monologue. None whatsoever. Especially interesting because it is a comic book, so that could have been easily represented with a thought bubble instead of word bubbles if you wanted to have it be an inner dialogue, but no. If we're doing show and tells, there is also one that ties in with my timestamp, which is the news report. Wait, is the woman talking? <laughs> it's kind of a similar thing to that. Uh, Larry Garter, for all of his uh, sartorial splendor, seems to occasionally forget that he is a reporter for a television station and not a radio station. Larry Garter here. Trigon has stopped talking now. And, my god, his upper eyes are opening. They're glowing. He... Ski! We are experiencing technical difficulties. So I think that is kind of a show and tell. Mm -hmm. But the timestamp that I had was the fact that this all appears to be on a tube television. And we can see the lines, the tracking lines from the video showing across the panels making it seem like it's a screen it's a technique that got used a lot in like dark knight returns and i think a lot of people like associate it with that but it's done for the most part as i said uh, uh with the exception of the confusion as to whether it is larry or trigon talking used really well here for the most part and uh yeah those tracking lines over the panels i thought made a timestamp that set this in the era of uh, videotape. Yeah, very much. And I, I recall, too, with the tube TVs and the, you know, show you really wanted to watch maybe when you were a kid and it not coming in quite right, having those little bad reception lines mm -hmm. yep. coming Trying to Fonzie the side of the TV. willing them to go away mm. so you could finish watching your stupid He-Man cartoon. Yeah. On the WLVI Kids Club. You know it. My sound effect is also from one of those panels, and as soon as Larry announces that Trigon has stopped talking and his eyeballs are starting to glow, we hear a ski, and it is a really, really stylized E. The, those letters are all made out of triangles in a very 80s looking way, and looking at it, it was evocative of the and then you go to white noise as the signal has failed from the television screen and we see the white noise the fuzz screen under it and then that is replaced by the please stand by sign coming on this is very evocative and also there are almost no sound effects in this issue because again it is really digging into the dreamlike quality of what's happening for all of those same reasons that was also my choice mm-hmm also, despite it being kind of evocative as the right before the TV goes offline noise, I thought it was kind of a cute sound for something associated with such horror. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, that's the beginning of him turning the city into this twisted nightmare scape of yeah. broken bodies and skulls and all that shit. Yeah. And it says, ski. <laughs> <laughs> you want to take this party to the uh, bozone? You know what, Corey? Let's take this party to the bozo. What instance of a character calling another character a bozo do you want to talk about? Uh, I had a couple. The first one is page 12, and it's uh, Raven delivering a real uh, zinger to Jericho. Yeah, that was my favorite, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> which he, once again, tries to 
jump into her body and psyche. She doesn't like it. No, no. And uh, she, I think, quite reasonably tells him he is a mindless, idiotic dolt. Dang. Tough but fair. Yep. I mean, by the time she is done with him, he is quite literally nearly mindless. Good zinger. Mm-hmm. So that was my favorite. I did have a backup. Is it uh, Donna's doppelganger dissing Terry? No, it is not. It is a different backup. Dissing Terry sounds like dysentery. Good point. Thank you. What was your backup? My backup, which is not my primary one, A, because it's not as good as the first one, but also B, because it's just mean, was uh, evil cyborg to regular cyborg saying, get lost, freak, you're scaring the kids. That's a pretty good zinger. I think also telling him uh, after cyborg says, without his robot parts, he'll die, saying, and no one will care, Stone. No one will care. I know. Evil Cyborg is such a jerk. He really is a big jerk. It also does kind of definitively answer a question I'd always had, which was which part of Cyborg was costume and which part was robot. And we see that the standard one-piece bathing suit that he has is just costume. He does not, apparently, to the best of our knowledge, have a robot dick. Every Teen Titans comic has a Aqualad the greatest of Teen Titans, and also has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? In this issue, despite possibly faking some powers, my Aqualad was Lilith, because A, she was able to get the team to and from uh, Earth and Azeroth, as it were. Mm -hmm. B, she potentially acted as some sort of safe haven for the good parts of Raven, maybe allowing that character to stop being all the way evil and resume being a Teen Titan at some point. Hmm. And also, I do just get a kick out of the fact that when she grabs her temples and says she's sensing something, <laughs> it's almost always something obvious. Yeah, I think that's pretty good, too. I think that's a solid choice. I, perhaps confusingly, had for my Aqualad, Beast Boy. What? I liked the fact that his greatest fear is kind of the most altruistic. Of all of the Teen Titans, he's the only one whose greatest fear is that he might hurt others, rather than that he's not the best, or that something bad will happen to him personally. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, that was kind of sweet. Also, his evil side is a fucking badass. Like, turning into a two-headed pterodactyl that eats robots. Then that demon dinosaur dog robot thing. Yeah. Creepy as, as heck. Yeah, so, I mean, there's not a ton to go on. I, I don't think any of the Titans had a particularly strong showing in this issue, because this is the part of the storyline where everything is going wrong for them. Mm -hmm. But this issue made me like Beast Boy more than I had previously, and so uh, I went with Beast Boy. Conversely, who did you have as your Beast Boy? As my Beast Boy, I had Wally because I felt like his unresolved feelings for Raven was what quickly led the team to being identified by Raven once they zapped their way mm. to Earth and getting messed with real bad instead of having a minute to kind of regroup and come up with a plan. So yeah, it's a lack of him being honest with his teammates and with himself about his feelings. Like, he didn't tell his teammates about his lack of powers. He didn't tell them that he wasn't over Raven. And he shows up and he's thinking like, oh, geez, Raven. And it's like a beacon yeah. to evil Raven. She's yep. like, there you are, you motherless turd. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she Where thought. did this turd come from? It has no parents. 
Get up on the top of Titan Tower where you belong. <laughs> yeah, I was tempted to go with Dick just because of the weird escalation of his responses uh, to his mentor dying versus him being told that he's uh, no good. But I decided to go with Jericho. Hmm. Fucking learn from your mistakes, buddy. You couldn't take over Raven before she was superpowered. You tried twice, it fucked everything over, but that's the one fucking arrow in his quiver. So he's just like, oh, I'm sure it'll work fine this time. I mean, yes, I understand the idea of perseverance, but what's the W.C. Fields thing? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, then give up. There's no sense being a damned idiot about it. Sage. Yeah. So fucking learn from your mistakes, Jericho. That That's not the way to beat this problem. Bad job, Jericho. That's just going to piss her off more. And that is what I think triggers Raven into sending all of the other Titans into their nightmares. So, boo, Jericho. Agreed. What was your favorite panel? Yeah. I wrote down, I think, three, but there are like six others that could have been in there. Page four, which is sort of like the splash screen of them on uh, Azeroth with a white background. The title page, kind of. Yeah, has an invented font that is super cool. Like, it looks like um, a record cover. Like, if I make a record, that might be the cover. Mm -hmm. Souls as white as heaven, as black as hell. I don't really know how to describe that font. It's very minimal. Mm Mm-hmm. It just looks very 80s. Like, yeah. the C is, like, basically a Pac-Man shape. The S is, like, the sign for a hurricane. Yeah, it's super cool. Like, it's a little bit hard to read because of its abstract. It's abstract mm-hmm. a little. Which and makes the, it... the reverse image of it, where the top one is just done with, like, blue outlines of white letters, and the bottom one is done, the front of the letters is black, but the back of them is white. And the letters are facing down as opposed to facing up in their 3D-ness. Yeah, I think that's a really, really solid choice. It's a neat picture in the middle of it, but mostly it's that font is fucking great. Yeah, it is such a cool picture. The double-page spread of the nightmarish hellscape of the center of New York is really, really chilling. And the, the tiny titans in the middle of it just looking up and saying, Oh my god. And how insignificant they look in the middle of this horror is really, really good. Yeah, that was that was my other main choice. I called it Dead City. And, a... Man, it is nuts. Like, the sidewalk, parts of the sidewalk is, like, turning into a hand that's, like, reaching up and clawing at a crumbling building. Yeah, there's... It's crazy. Like, when you see cartoons of what the inside of a brain looks like, where there's nerves connecting to things... There's kind of that going on, only the nerves are made out of twisted and tortured bodies. And then there's just a bunch of demon skulls and bones cropping up all over the place. It's really cool looking. Really disturbing. I honestly think my my, my favorite might be the reaction shot we get of Arella when Donna says, I've seen that look in her eyes before, on Raven. And Lilith says, he has claimed his daughter and she has embraced him. The soul of Raven is gone. And Arella just looks shocked and dismayed and embarrassed. But it's this super expressive look on her face. She says, no, don't say that. My daughter has to be safe. And it really does manage to convey in just a really simple image that's not very large that she has just kind of lost a ton of hope. She is shocked. She is dismayed. And, oh, I fucked up. 
Yeah, the expressions, the faces in this whole book are really good. Yeah. Actually, for my favorite one, for similar reasons that we talked about already, and it's on page 18, and it's uh, the evil Donna uh, looking at good Donna with just a smirk of utter and complete contempt Yeah, for her, and it is so well drawn. Yeah, it's like you can tell she thinks it's funny what a fucking chump she thinks good Donna is. Mm -hmm. It's so evil. It's real good. Evil Beast Boy eating a heart or whatever. Yeah, Beast Boy snacking on a on a fistful of Vic is really, really disturbing. I had that one as well. Um, and then he's saying, as we always have, as we always will, we always kill those people we care about. It's just like, ah! That's super creepy. Yeah. And, I mean, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the page 13, fuck you Jericho, that Raven does, mm -hmm. where it is, again, a full page spread, and it is in pinks and oranges of just power and lightning crackles of pink power emanating from a line drawing of Raven really fucking up Joey. And each inset panel has a look of horror on a different Titan's face, except for Lilith, who is watching it impassively. There's so much going on on that page. For a splash page, essentially, it does have the little inset panels of each of the Titans, but for it to do that much storytelling in a single image is so impressive. Great job, Perez. Great job, Tangal. Great job, everybody, on this issue. It was creepy as fuck. Yeah. It's been a heck of a ride, so I just have one question I must put to you. Mm -hmm. Wa-poot! What is Aqualad probably up to? Corey, wa-poot! February 1986. Mm-hmm. Aqualad, great guy, fan of sport, as have come up before, making some wagers here and there, lost that bet about the woman's uh, open, had to clean the dome. Oof. Also, not the biggest physically, of the Teen Titans. In fact, one of the uh, one more of the average shorter members of the team. Yeah. yeah, average, kind of shorter guy. Therefore, also feeling a kinship to the other athletes of the world, see strengthened limbs or no, who are not the tallest among us. And uh, he got wind that the uh, NBA was putting together a slam dunk contest. And he thought to himself, wow, now here's a chance in a sport usually dominated by taller folks where maybe the little guy could have a chance. Oh. And so he'd been following the careers of uh, various ballers, as as Aqualad does. Sure. So Anthony Spud Webb of... Uh, Atlanta Hawks. Of the Hawks had fought his way to the slam dunk contest mm -hmm. in 1986, February. He was an amazing jumper, but Aqualad thought for him to really cinch this thing... Maybe maybe we can get together and give him a little little coaching. So Aqualad had spent a lot of time on the court. And Beaky, it turns out, is an amazing jumper. Not only on account of just being a bird and having wings and everything. Sure. But so what Aqualad realized is that Beaky was so kind of off-kilter or uncentered, as it were, when he was holding that basketball in his giant pelican pouch. Cord, did they ever use the pelican pouch as a basket when they were playing? Just have... Yeah, Beaky, they, like, they, hover up there and then, like, have Aqualad slam dunk it into the pouch? Oh, yeah, all the time. They had all, okay. all kinds of stuff like right. that. Right. But, but this isn't about that. This no, is about I, how, I, does, how does Aqualad help Spud Webb? I'm sorry I got sidetracked. It's okay. It's easy. It's understandable. 
But so he basically did an in-depth analysis of Beaky's jump. Oh. And what he realized is Beaky's got, you know, those spindly little bird legs. And so it's not actually these big muscles of the thighs and the, and the calves and all of that where a lot of the power was generated. Really where they're coming from is where the legs bisect the body is the hips. Hmm. You know, Shakira wouldn't come out with her her song for, for many years about, right. about hips telling the truth. But even then they did not lie. Exactly. So... He realized that it's this combination of being able to have the body flex certain muscles whilst relaxing others in conjunction with the hips that generates an amazing ability to jump. Mm. Much like when choosing your favorite motorcycle racing movie, it's all about torque. It helps if Ice Cube is in it, but yes, sure. yeah, ultimately, it's, <laughs> I guess it's about torque, I guess. Anyway... Did his research, put it all together, contacted his buddy. Not really his buddy, he was more of a, a fanboy, but he managed mm-hmm. to, to get Spud Webb's attention, share with him a little bit of coaching about the hips and the muscles and whatnot. And yeah, Spud Webb went on to kill it. He won. Yeah. Five foot seven, one of only two people under six feet tall to uh, to win the NBA Slam Dunk Championships. Uh, the other would be Nate Robinson, I believe. Is that true? That sounds... I know he got to the finals. I can't remember if he actually won, but I think he did by jumping over Dwight Howard. But those are the only two guys, apparently, that are under six feet tall that have, have won. And this ought to make you happy, too, that one of the people that, that lost out earlier on in the one that Spud Webb won uh, was uh, Michael Jordan. I do like that. Yeah. I loved Spud Webb growing up. I liked the Atlanta Hawks when it was him and Dominique Wilkins. That was a really fun team to watch play. When in the month did that happen? That was uh, February 8th was when the uh, the competition was. Well, by February 8th, Aqualad had already had a pretty busy month. Hmm. I don't know if you know this, but of the many nicknames that Aqualad has earned in the DCU, one of them is the Grill Brick. Do you know why that is? Because he's good at cleaning barbecues? No, because he's good at squashing beef. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a really good negotiator. Everybody likes him. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, he has ha- been able to arrange some sit-downs with some some feuding people throughout the DC Universe. Not everybody realizes, in the DC Universe, both Tupac and Biggie are still alive. Mm. Largely due to the uh, efforts of one Aqualad. But he had quite a test on his hand for those negotiating skills. You see, a few months back... For Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day, big worldwide ceremony everybody was on board with, Aqualad had made a bit of a tactical error. Mm. He had invited both Pope John Paul II and the Dalai Lama, and they both assumed that they would be the head of the parade. And Aqualad was like, you know, I'm sorry, guys, I really appreciate that. I would love it if you could attend. That is why I invited you. But... I don't feel like the head of it should belong to any one faith because Aquatic Teen Appreciation Day is bigger than any one religion. It's something I want everyone to feel like they can enjoy. And the Dalai Lama and Pope John Paul II were like, okay. But I think they each secretly blamed the other and it kind of started a a feud between them. It really had some bad blood. I mean, they were pretty polite about it, but they did not get along after that. They never sat down in the same room together. They started uh, mailing junk food they knew the other didn't like to each other's houses. Oh, no. Yeah. And Aqualad was like, I don't like where this is going. I feel like these are both really nice guys. If I could get them to sit down together, I think they would realize they can get along okay. So he told 
Pope John Paul II. Johnny P, you're going to love this. You know how you've been worried about your Pope gear. I love the Pope robe. I think it's great. But uh doesn't do any favors for your behind. Oh. It makes, uh, makes it look like you've got a frumpy Pope rump. I have a friend. He's a reformed guy. The Mad Mod. Maybe you've heard of him. Greatest stylist in the world. He's going to design you some new Pope gear. That's just, it's going to be slimming. You're going to love it. And, and JP was like, yes, this sounds blessed. Sound just like him. I know. It's like JP two's right here. Yep. And then he went to the Dalai Lama and was just like, Dalai Lama, can I call you Dolly? Uh, and the Dalai Lama said, no, that's not my name. Uh, but you can call me it if you want, Aqualad. I'm a big fan. He says, look, I know that two of your biggest hobbies are gardening and clock repair. True facts about the Dalai Lama. So I got a couple of reformed villains that I can sit you down with. I thought maybe, you know, you can uh, help reform them and then maybe they can you can pick up some lessons from you. I swung by Arkham. I got Poison Ivy. I got the Clock King. They just want to have a sit down. I think you could really help them and also maybe learn a few things from them. And the Dalai Lama's like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Again, Again, nailing the impression. Startling likeness. Yes. What you're not seeing at home is there is a full facial transformation that goes along with that. It's uncanny. Startling. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to startle. Yeah. I, I forgot about your your fear of the Dalai Lama. <laughs> so scary. But he, he gets them both to, to have this meeting in India. And they both get there. And then they're like, what? He's here? I'm leaving. But uh, Aqualad, too quick. He has Beaky go and lock the doors. Almost immediately. And then they're stuck in a room together. And they sat down and they ended up having a pretty good talk. And they really were able to squash that beef. Thanks to Aqualad and his trickiness. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to. Is that how he got the name Grillbrick? It's how he cemented the name. He'd been kind of trying to float that one out there. But it hadn't really caught on. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And that happened on uh, Groundhog Day too. No kidding. So I wonder if maybe... The Pope and the Dalai Lama kept reliving that day over and over until they got it right. I like to think so. One can only hope. Thank you so much for listening, dear listeners. This was a nice time and a scary comic. Maybe next week we'll have a less spooky tale for you when we get back to the Defenders and see what they're up to. All right. Hey, I was a guest on the wonderful podcast Smash Fiction this last week. That episode should be up now. I took part in a debate as to who would win in a fight between Ultron and Swamp Thing, and it was some of the most fun I've had in a really long time. You guys should definitely check it out. Things got weird. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. And we're all up in the rest of the internet, too. So just type in Tighten Up the Defense, that's T-I-T-A-N, and see where the World Wide Web takes you. If you'd like to leave us a review on whatever podcast listening application you're using, I think that would be a nice thing for you to do. Just uh, rank us five stars and say, Tighten Up the Defense is the best podcast I ever heard with my ears or other senses. I sense that they're great. Good. And then, you know, you're implying you have superpowers, which is a fun time. Maybe you can get on one of those uh, teenage crime fighting teams. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. 
If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that's for donors only, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. It's a show that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, about Howard the Duck. That's a nice time. And there's a bunch of other bonus material, too. I made a bunch of videos last week about Jack Kirby, um, and there's a ton of audio material as well that has been recorded over the years, and that's just for you if you donate. Yeah, thanks. And also, thanks for listening. Until next time... Please stop killing your friends. And don't turn a skyscraper into a giant toilet that you use in public. We love you. So much. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I,